You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, as you know, the SFNSF is a regular program. We get on our mailing list. We do this once a month. We get two distinguished writers. We match them up, and we generally read fiction, not always. We're going to um, sort you a little bit into nonfiction. Not tonight, but <laughs> if you insist. I'm no, I'm not <laughs> insisting. Uh, and as usual, I want to ask people to turn on their cell phones unless something in case something better comes up and um, so without further ado what we're going to do is we're going to have our two readers then we'll schmooze for a little while then we will have a panel discussion and our readers will unfortunately we don't have our entire our bookstore here tonight usually um, Borderlands uh, is on the ball but tonight uh, I think we had a conflict but the authors are here and they're here to sign autographs and talk about their books which we'll do after the reading um, our first reader this evening is someone uh, who's um, very well known here in um, San Francisco and in this um, this community, comes to the readings a lot, but I believe this is, is this the first or the second time we've had you as a... As a speaker? First time. The first time. Well, we'll correct that this evening. Um, Michael Curlin not only writes um, science fiction, which is the theme of this, but also fantasy nonfiction, uh, books on forensics, and I think some books on um, legal matters. Is that correct? And mysteries. Oh, yeah. I'm going to leave out the mysteries. He's one of the world's leading experts on um, Sherlock Holmes, and he's, he writes the more, uh, which I would call historical detective novels. Slightly fantasy the way I write them, yeah. All right. Well, without further ado, uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Michael Curlin. Thank you, thank you. Uh, as far as being one of the local, I'm going to tell you something about when I first started writing years ago, I had about three books published and I was living in New York. And a friend of mine named Tom Waters who was living in Los Angeles gave me a call. And he said, I'm getting an echo here. That's your fault. It's <laughs> your fault. Is that better? Okay, that's better. Can you still hear me? Yes. Sorry. Um, <laughs> He said, I'm at the science fiction bookstore, and in, 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 uh, you'll never guess who's reading. And I said, who's reading? And he said, you are. And I said, how am I doing? And he said, fairly well. And I was, first of all, I was pleased. My thought was, wow, I'm so famous that people want to imitate me. And then I realized it was actually the other way around. I was so not well known that somebody could pretend to be me and nobody would know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> but that was my first first autograph party I ever did. It wasn't me. <laughs> anyway, I will. Huh? <laughs> I, I go into bookstores all the time and I say, uh, "Oh, here's four copies of my book. You've got. You want me to sign them?" And almost always they say yes. And sometimes they say, "Can I see your driver's license, please?" <laughs> uh, the reason I do that, of course, is first of all so they'll know who I am and maybe get more copies, and second of all so they can't return them. <laughs> I'm going to start, I'm going to read the introduction to this collection, which I highly recommend, written by me, 
but I'm going to read the introduction to it because it talks about what science fiction is, among other things. And then I'm going to read a chapter of my new book, which is not finished yet, so it's obviously not out. Uh, it's a new Moriarty, and uh, well, we'll get to that when we get to it. First of all, there's an introduction to this by Richard Lupoff, but I won't read that because he says nice things about me. Forward, Michael Curland. This essay flutters about like an angry butterfly, so just relax and enjoy the bright colors of the fluttering wings and don't try to pin it down. Once, oh, this is not the, once many long years ago at the dawn of time, I was just afraid I started reading it. I haven't seen it while I was afraid. I just was going to tell that same anecdote again, but I'm not. <laughs> once at the dawn of time of possibly 1976, I went with Tom Waters, an old friend and fellow writer, to the office of Larry Shaw, who was then an editor at a paperback house called Glancer Books. Tom was trying to sell Larry a science fiction manuscript, and Larry wanted to buy it. But all contracts had to be okayed by Mr. Stein, the publisher, who happened to be walking down the hall at that very moment. Larry sprang from his desk and intercepted Stein. I want to buy this book, he said, waving the portion and outline at Stein. What sort of book is it, Stein asked, looking at the sheaf of papers as though it were an ass preparing to strike. Science fiction, Larry explained. Not this month, Stein said. Nurse novels, this month, nurse novels, and strode off down the hall. Every story ever told since the ancient Assyrians gathered about their ziggurats and told sad tales of the death of kings exists in a world of its own, for stories are fantasies, and each resides in its own fantasy world created by the mind of the storyteller. The most grimply realistic grimply? It should be grimly, I never noticed it's a misprint. The most grimly realistic stories conveyed with gut-wrenching honesty are fantasies. The most naturalistic stories filled with minute details taken from life, set in neighborhoods much like your own, populated with children and parents you'd recognize if you saw them coming down the street, are fantasies. A quick aside here for a definition. A fantasy, says me, is a story that contains one or more fanciful elements. It does not have to work, have working magic or be set in a mystical world. A fanciful element is one that, upon examination, sets that world or the characters apart from our own world and the people we know, no matter how slightly. The fact that, for example, in most literature, the characters never defecate makes that literature fanciful. <laughs> no matter how honest, realistic, and naturalistic, oh, uh, Incidentally, Isaac Asimov suddenly realized that along by his, you know, 200 or 300th book, and all of his novels from that point on had characters going to the bathroom about every six chapters. I was just, I, was, <laughs> I, and I said, I said, Isaac, you know, what led you to this? He said, well, I noticed people do shit. No matter how honest, realistic, and naturalistic an author is determined to be, in the very process of deciding what elements to emphasize and which to downplay or withhold, she is creating a fantasy. Your reality is not mine, and my reality, you'll be glad to hear, is not the one you inhabit. The differences in our viewpoint, in our perception, and in our history put each of us in a unique universe, and in trying to portray that universe, the writer creates a world of fantasy which others may visit, but in which nobody but the writer's own characters may dwell. I might also add, and I admit this is a bit of a reach, that every story is equally a mystery. For if the author doesn't create for us a need to know what happens next, we will put the book down and go away. So if every story is a fantasy and a mystery, and most of them are also romances, why bother with the labels? The easy answer is so the bookstores and libraries will know where to shelve the book. Here's a nice little science fiction novel that goes over here on this shelf. Here's a western, put it over there by the door. So here's an essay question for you with 20 points on the final. And remember, legibility counts. What would you do with a very funny story set in Arizona in the 1880s involving a romance between a handsome young doctor and a Martian who's come to Earth to solve a series of murders? It's a Western. <laughs> <laughs> Nurse novel. 
Probably. <laughs> well, if you're an astute author hip in the ways of publishing, you won't write it. And if you do write it, and by some chance the editor buys it, the marketing department won't know what to do with it. But if we create a story that can be labeled a nurse novel, or a horror novel, or a suspense novel, or a romance novel, or a bodice ripper, or a cozy, or a generations novel, or a techno-adventure novel, or a sword and sorcery, or a spy novel, or a historical mystery, or, or, well then, the bookstore clerk knows just where to put it, just what to call it, and whom to sell it to. So where's the problem? Ten points and stop sneaking peeks at that paper on the next desk. Isn't it a convenience for the reader who likes hard-boiled science fiction or hardcore detective novels, or, or do I have that backward? Well, never mind. To know that he can just reach up to that shelf right over there, no, no, not that one, that's literature, and find something he'll enjoy reading? The problem is that when you name a genre, you then have to define it. And when you define it, you're encouraging authors to write within that definition. I'm sorry, Mr. Melville, sea stories aren't selling very well right now, and just making the whale white isn't enough to make it a fantasy. Instead of a whale, couldn't you make it a unicorn? Unicorns are big. Besides, whales aren't white. Unicorns are white. <laughs> There's got to be a better way of letting the reader know what's in a book than making it conform to a predefined category. Maybe some kind of color coding for the different elements that make up the novel. A foreign locale could be blue, with different shades of blue for just how far in it is. Light smooching and hand-holding could be pink, unless, of course, it's by people of the same sex, in which case it's lavender. If they all go th all the way, then it's bright red, and so on. I like my novels to be purple, green, brown, violet, with a splash of red here and there. What about you? <laughs> all of which has very little to do with the stories in this book, which I'll skip over because they're talking about the stories in this book. But uh, keep your finger on this page in the next and flip to it and add one of the phrases below at random wherever you feel the need. But what had become of the princess and how had she left the palace and who turned her brother Prince Lepid into a rat? Or had he always been a rat? <laughs> a very clever deduction, young man. I believe we can now piece together what happened that evening in the Salon des Artistes before the Duke de Frontenbach left his chaise. What did you say your name was? D'Artagnan, your grace, a humble servant of his majesty the king. D'Artagnan, eh? I predict great things for you, D'Artagnan. With trembling fingers, she undid the drawstrings of her lace ponnoir, revealing to Edward her fear. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Slowly, the procession of stately barges made its way down the Nile, bringing the living god and master of the civilized world, Pharaoh Tut Ankh Amun, to the great temple at Thebes, where he would lead the yearly ceremony honoring his cousin, the great god Thoth. Tut Ankh Amun stood motionless on the foredeck of the imperial barge, his golden armor gleaming brightly in the sun, so that the thousands of his people lining the near bank of the Nile could see him and worship him as he passed. Under his golden breastplate his stomach itched right above the belly button, but he was powerless to pull off the breastplate and scratch his stomach with so many people watching. It was agony, <laughs> agony being Pharaoh, if the people only knew what he went through for them. <laughs> Dandrel sighed. As the sun sinks into the west, so must I and my people leave for the west, the endless journey to the west. For there is no room for magic in this world anymore. We will fade into the west and bother you no more. Yangli nodded. Perhaps that is for the best, he said. But first, Dendril said, allowing a faint smile to cross his face, let's have one hell of a party. <laughs> That's the introduction to this. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank we'll, you. We'll take on those themes in the discussion. I thought. I thought. That's why I was... <laughs> Literary there. criticism. That's what we do. Uh, I'm now going to read chapter two from a book, uh, a Moriarty book, which is not finished yet. I think I have 11 chapters. Uh, and I will read, first of all, 
my introduction, which is in some small ways my relating of this history of various events occurring during the later Victorian era may differ from that found in contemporary chronologies, journals, reports, and such. In all such areas of conflict, my version is, of course, the correct one. However, all persons appearing in this book shall be regarded as fictional, regardless of their resemblance to important historical personages or your great aunt Harriet. Now, Who Thinks Evil is the name of the book, and it's from, the quote is from Oniswaki Malipans, which is the, uh, the motto of the Order of the Garter, and it stands for evil to them who think evil. And well, I'll tell you the story about that before I read the thing. It's very quick, honest. Um, uh, in, in, the, in the court of Henry II, uh, while they were dancing, a, a royal woman, or at least a noble woman, uh, garter fell off. And the prince quickly picked it up, gallantly said, Oni soi qui mali pense. However, isn't that kind of weird for a garter? I mean, we know about garters that wasn't. Well, the thing was, it was a red garter, and red garters were worn by witches, and she could have been burned if he hadn't quickly and gallantly uh, said something for her. Anyway, I'm going. Okay, this is chapter two, and it's called Molly's. Come give us a taste of your quality, Shakespeare. I always start with a little quote. People make people think I'm literate. It had been Saturday, September 13th, 1890, for five hours, but Friday took a long time dying at the gentleman's establishment known as Molly's, a white brick three-story building at 33 Gladstone Square, London. The last client had been ushered out, except for a marquee and a colonel of the guards, who were using the establishment as a residence for the night, and five loo players of various ranks and stations in an upstairs room who probably wouldn't be staggering out into the chill, damp fog until sometime Tuesday. The maids were gathering the soiled bed linens to be washed and ironed, the glasses to be scoured, the bottles to be rinsed and returned to the vintners, and the various frilly garments and special costumes to be cleaned, examined, and repaired if necessary. The filles de joie, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the fils de joy were enjoying the luxury of sleeping alone. Then suddenly there came a tapping as of someone strongly rapping, rapping at the outer door. <laughs> a bit late for visitors muttered the porter, or a bit early if it comes to that, he slid open the eye slot and peered out. The orange glow of the gaslight above the door showed two men in evening clothes standing outside clutching their silk hats in their gloved hands, a thin young man with mutton-chop whiskers and the appearance of studied solemnity, and an older, thicker one with a bushy, with a bushy brush, I shouldn't have written that, it's hard to say, a bushy brush mustache and a touch of humor in his ruddy face. Closed for the night, the porter called out to them. Come back tomorrow or later today as it happens. Say along about three in the afternoon. Glad to see you gentlemen then, I'm sure. The young thin gentleman brought his eye close to the eye slot. Sorry to bother you, my man, he said. We're here to retrieve Baron Renfrew. He's late for his next uh, engagement. Has he changed his plans? Is he spending the night? Could we speak to him if you don't mind? Baron Renfrew, is it then, the porter asked. Well then, come on to the parlor. We'll see, we'll see. He pulled the door open and escorted them to the front room. You'll just wait here for a minute, it might be, and I'll fetch Miss Molly. No more than three minutes later, Molly Cobby, fair, buxom, fast approaching 40 and pleasant to look at, from the red silk ribbons in her dark hair to the black satin slippers on her feet, came through the inner door, tying the cord to her silk wrap firmly around her waist. What's all this, she cried. The Baron left these premises more than an hour ago, I believe. It might be two hours even. And what might you be wanting with him at this time of the morning, if I may ask? Left, as he said the younger one, pursing his lips and brushing his nose carefully with the tips of his fingers. Sorry, miss, said the older one with the thick brush mustache, jumping to his feet and standing as ramrod straight as a sergeant on parade. I'm Mr. Mortimer and my associate here is Mr. Pellew. 
We don't mean to be a bother, indeed we don't, but the Baron's coach has been awaiting the Baron in the mews, horse, coachman and all, for the past five hours, and the Baron has not appeared in its vicinity. If you could tell us just when he left, or where he was headed, we would be most appreciative. It's our job, you see, to look after the Baron, and it's as much as our job is worth to lose track of him. But he's not always thoughtful enough to enumerate his comings and goings before he comes and goes. Molly looked at them thoughtfully. You're a pair of his watchdogs, then. Why didn't you come inside all this time and wait in comfort such as it is, is, like Mr. Uh, Fetch, who follows him about everywhere? Mr. Mortimer smiled. Where is outside watchdogs, miss? Speaking of which, said Mr. Pello, where is the aforesaid Mr. Fetch? And he peered about the room as though he expected Fetch to spring up from some Chester cabinet like clockwork. Why a handsome young gentleman like the Baron needs to be guarded and escorted hither and yon is more than I know, Molly said. Perhaps you could explain it to me. It's just the way of things, ma'am, Mr. Pellow said, spreading his arms wide in explanation. It's his mother, you see, added Mr. Mortimer, and his grandmama. They don't want to know just what he's doing, if you see what I mean, but they don't want him to get into any trouble whilst doing it. Well, Molly said, shaking her head, that's as may be, I suppose. You say he's gone, asked Mr. Pellow, and Mr. Fetch with him? Do you know just when they left? I don't keep a watch on my gentleman callers, Molly said severely, dropping primly down onto the couch and waving the two men into seats. Not even to receive uh, recompense, suggested Mortimer, cautiously settling into an overstuffed chair. Come now, Molly said severely. Do you think we're a gaggle of streetwalkers in here? Accounts are rendered quarterly, and I expect them to be promptly paid. So you don't keep track of the comings and goings of your guests, Pelo asked, cocking his head to one side and peering at her like a sparrow inspecting a beetle. Only as it happens in the course of providing for their, as it were, amusement, Molly told him. The porter sees them in, but there's a side door by which they may depart if they've a mind to. And at the end of the evening, the girls tell me what uh, services have been provided, and it's put in the gentleman's account. So you can't say for sure that the Barrett and Mr. Fetch have indeed left. Is that so? Molly shifted nervously in her seat. I didn't see them leave, if that's what you mean, but it was some time past... I was in the upstairs hall, it must be a good hour ago, and Mr. Fetch was no longer in his chair outside the room. And when Mr. Fetch is gone from the hall, it stands to reason that Baron Renfrew was gone from the room, if you see what I mean. Excuse me, asked Mr. Mortimer. Mr. Fetch, like a faithful dog, perhaps that's why he's called Fetch, do you suppose? Always waits outside his master's door. I have no notion of what he fancies he's guarding his master from, but he's quite earnest about it. One of the girls once offered to entertain him in her room while he was waiting, as an act of kindness, if you see what I mean, but he would have none of it. Very serious and dedicated, Mr. Fetch. Nancy was quite put out. No one had ever turned her down before. It's usually her what does the turning down, if you see what I mean. So we give him a comfy chair and a bit of fizz for the gas of Jane and just a, just a touch of brandy to take away the nasty taste, as he says, and there he sits until the baron emerges. Mortimer nodded. I see, he said. So since Mr. Fetch is gone, the baron likewise must have emerged but you didn't actually see him leave. I can't say I did. No, that's true. Did anyone? Molly sighed. It's quite late. Most of the girls are asleep. Mr. Pello sat primly on the red plush sofa behind him and began absently playing with one of the tassels that formed a fringe around the sofa's edge. With which young lady was the Baron spending the evening, he inquired. Perhaps we could speak with her. Molly pushed herself to her feet. Needs must as wants will, I always say. And she sighed once more and shook her head sadly and left the room. It was perhaps half a minute later they heard her scream. Mortimer and Pellew jumped to their feet and rushed upstairs, followed closely by the porter who brandished a great oak cudgel which had mysterious appeared in his hand. The screams stopped as they reached the long dimly lit hallway, but doors were opening and the young ladies of the establishment, their flannel nightgowns held tightly around them against the draft, were peering cautiously out. 
At the end of the hallway, one of the Lou players, cards in hand, had emerged from the card room and was sniffing the air cautiously. Fire was a constant worry in these old buildings. Seeing nothing of that sort amiss, the men retreated back into the card room with one last aggravated sniff and a muttered, women, and slammed the door. <laughs> Several of the girls had gathered around one of the open doors. Mortimer paused to turn up the gas on a wall sconce near the door, and bright white light from a mantle flooded the hallway and the room beyond. The bedroom was a rectangle about 14 by 20 feet, holding an oversized bed, a night table, a bureau, a wardrobe, and a washstand with a porcelain wash basin that might be said to be in the style of Louis XV, depending on who said it. A colored etching of a schooner in a windstorm, an oil painting of a cow, and two framed mirrors hung on the walls, which were otherwise covered with a flocked wallpaper in a tulip pattern. A red-haired girl lay stretched out on the bed, and Miss Molly was bending over her. The light bounced off the mirrors and the walls and ceiling, cast weird reflections around the room, and left a deep shadow on the bed as the men entered, and for a second it seemed that mysterious half-seen entities were gliding about in the unlit corners. The girl, a pretty, freckle-faced young redhead, lay on her back naked with a sheet thrown over her middle for modesty, her hands and feet spread apart and tied with some sort of thick satin cord to the four bedposts. Some trick of the lighting seemed to cast a dark shadow across the sheet. I didn't know our master was the devotee of the Marquis de Sade, remarked Mr. Mortimer quietly. Let us not dwell on this, said Pelu, turning away and gazing earnestly at another part of the room. <laughs> Untie the girl, Miss Molly, and I'll see that she gets an extra five, no, twenty, make that twenty pounds for her troubles. Rose, she called herself, Molly said without looking up, because of her coloring, if you see what I mean, red hair, red cheeks, Rose. Called herself? Mortimer stepped closer and peered over Molly's shoulder. The girl's eyes stared sightlessly at the mirrored ceiling. Her mouth was opened, her lips shaped into an oval O, an eternal silent scream of horror. A deep gash splayed open her too white skin from her throat down between her breasts and disappeared beneath the sheet. What had seemed a dark shadow across the middle of the bed was a pool of slowly congealing blood. Well, I'll be, began Mortimer, taking an involuntary step backwards, his hands across his mouth. What a horrible thing, horrible. Pellow turned back and stepped closer to the bed to examine the carnage. Awful indeed, he said. Tragic. Sons concentrated fury attacking this poor girl. I haven't seen anything like it since, well, for some time. He turned to Mortimer. You don't think this could be the work of our master, do you? He asked in an undertone. There were rumors at the time, I remember. Bosh, said Mortimer. Then and now. Bosh. Don't believe it for an instant. Something horrible has happened here, but you can't think that the Baron had ought to do with it. Well... Where is he then, asked Pillow, peering around the room. Suddenly, Molly screamed once more and jumped back from the bed. Something grabbed my leg, she shrieked. The gaggle of girls gathered in the hallway outside shrieked in sympathy and then shrieked again as an arm emerged from beneath the bed, its hand reaching, reaching. Mortimer and Pillow jumped for the arm and pulled. It was attached to a weasened little man in a white shirt and black breeches who slid out from under the bed, lay prone and motionless on the floor. The girls shrieked once more. Why, it's Mr. Fetch, Molly said, peering down at the men. Fetched opened his eyes and blinked at the light. Where am I? He croaked. What happened? Never mind that, Mr. Mortimer said severely. Where's the baron? Fetch tried to sit up but lay back down with a weak groan. I was bumped, he said. Banged, bopped aside the head. Something grabbed me from behind and something bopped me a vicious bop on the... Ow! He had tried to touch the spot above his left ear where the damage had been done, but the pain was too great. <coughs> Hang on a second. That, that voice is hard to do. <laughs> what sort of something hit you Molly asked one of the girls outside the door put her hand to her mouth ghosts and ghoulies she whispered in a loud and earnest whisper there's strange things walks these corridors at night 
Mighty strange, one of the other girls agreed. I have felt their presence as a cold, clammy hand on the back in the dark. None stranger than yourself, Gladys Plum, Molly said severely. Go back to your rooms now, all of you, and stop frightening each other or you'll be feeling my cold hand where it'll do some good. The cluster of young women looked at her wide-eyed and made no attempt to move. Where is your master, Mortimer repeated, bending over the prostrate Fetch. Where is the Baron? Don't know, Fetch mumbled. Where am I? Molly squatted on the balls of her feet next to Fetch. You're in Rose's room, she told him. Until moments ago, you were under Rose's bed. Moving his head gingerly, Fetch looked around the room. I was, he asked, wonderingly. What was I doing there? Where's the Baron got to then? Wait, Mortimer said. What's that sound? Sound? Pelu straightened up and looked searchingly around the room. Be quiet and listen, Mortimer instructed, holding his forefinger to his lips. They listened silently for a few moments. A couple of the girls in the hall giggled nervously, but Molly looked sternly at them and all giggles subsided. What sort of sound, Molly whispered. It's a sort of soft, scratching, thumping, sobbing sort of sound, Mortimer said. <laughs> Coming from... He looked around him, trying to locate the sound. There it is again, but I cannot tell where it's coming from. Molly lifted her eyes to the ceiling and held her breath. I do hear it, she said. She waved her finger around the room like a compass needle gone wild and then steadied it to point to the wardrobe. There, she said, it comes from there. Pello tiptoed over to the wardrobe with exaggerated caution and paused in front of the door to look back at Mortimer. Mortimer nodded and, standing behind Mortimer, the porter raised high his cudgel. Pello stood to the side of the wardrobe and yanked at the door handle with no effect. He yanked again, and again, it did not budge. But this time a loud squeal emerged from inside the wardrobe. Pello frowned and moved in, and, and moving in front of the door, he took the ornate round knob firmly in both hands. Spreading his legs to brace his feet against the sides of the wardrobe, he yanked and yanked again with all his might. There was a creaking and a snapping, and the door flew open, throwing Pello on his back in an undignified sprawl. In the wardrobe were hanging a few frocks and jackets, a teal blue velvet cloth coat, and a red silk dressing gown with Japanese pretensions. Crouched under the dressing gown, as in, in as tight a ball as she could manage, was a small girl in a frilly white chemise, her pert round face wet with tears and red with the long effort at suppressing a scream, a series of screams that now began tumbling forth. Molly squinted at the girl and took a step forward. Here now, here now, Pamela, she said sharply. Let's have none of that. You must control yourself. Whatever were you doing in the wardrobe? It's a horrible thing what's happened, but you must take a deep breath and control yourself. Pamela gulped and stopped sobbing long enough to take a deep breath and then broke out into a fresh paroxysm of sobs. Mortimer moved up and took the girl in his arms, patting her sympathetically, if awkwardly, on the back. There, there, he said. I have a gal at home just about your age, maybe a peck younger. You mustn't upset yourself so. What were you doing in the wardrobe? Pamela sobbed. Were you in there while it happened? Pello asked. Whatever it was, take a deep breath now. Pamela looked at him, took a deep breath, and sobbed. I don't think, Molly said, that deep breathing is going to help. Mortimer took an oversized white handkerchief from his jacket pocket and wiped off Pamela's moist face. So it would seem, he agreed. I'll take her into her own room, Molly said, gathering the girl into her own arms. We'll talk to her later after she had a chance to whatever it is she needs to do. Mr. Mortimer looked at Mr. Pello and Mr. Pello looked at Mr. Mortimer. Go for the specials, Mortimer told Pello. I'll stay here and do what can be done. Put someone at each door, Pello said. Of course, Mortimer agreed, but I fear the horse is long gone. What horse, Molly demanded, what specials? The special household branch of the CID at Scotland Yard, ma'am, 
Mortimer told her, there's nothing for it, I'm afraid. There's been murder done, and his uh, uh, Baron Renfrew is missing. What household? Molly squealed, her hands flying up to her face. I don't want the Rosers in here, she protested, looking wildly around as though she expected them to jump through the window at any second. Oh, these aren't the regular police, Mortimer assured her. This is a very discreet group of gentlemen, specially trained to handle situations like this. Mr. Pello will take our coach and fetch them. Will you please see that all the outer doors are secured? Situations like what, Molly asked. Just what is this ear special household branch? Go, Mr. Pello, Mr. Mortimer said, taking charge with a firm hand. See to the door, if you please, Miss Molly. All will be revealed to you in the fullness of time, which in the present case will probably be within the next half hour, I should say. Mr. Pellow trotted off down the corridor, the cluster of girls parting before him like the Red Sea before Moses. If Pellow, if Pellow thought a religious simile wasn't too inappropriate at a time like this. I say, a voice bellowed from down the hall, will you girls please keep it down? We're trying to play cards in here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.